A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome to another edition of the Arsenal Women Arsecast on arsblog.com. Joining me, Tim, on this episode is BBC journalist, broadcaster and commentator Chris Slegg. Now, Chris, uh, along with Patricia Gregory, has written a book that's just been released called The History of the Women's FA Cup Final. It's the 50th anniversary of the Women's FA Cup in 2021. Um, and quite fittingly this year, actually, the, the Women's FA Cup final is going to be played on the 5th of December at Wembley Stadium. The 5th of December will mark the 100th anniversary of the FA banning women's football, a ban that lasted for 50 years until 1971. And so that's why you have the Women's FA Cup starting in 1971. And Chris's co-author, Patricia Gregory, was um, a big part of the driving force behind the competition Anyone who's ever tried to find out any sort of information about previous women's FA Cup finals will understand what what a task it is. Even just finding information from cup finals from the early 2000s, like team lineups um, from the 1990s, it's even very hard to discover things like who scored the goals, um, what was the attendance, really basic kind of statistics that we really take for granted in the men's game. Uh, for a, a kind of an occasion as prestigious as the Women's FA Cup final, it's still really, really difficult to find that information. So what Chris and Patricia have done is basically um, undertaken a massive archiving exercise and spoken to players and journalists um, and clubs just to gather some of all that information and put it in one place. Um, and so what they've what they've got in this book is a real... Um, you know, the archetypal document for the Women's FA Cup. And they've been able to do things that are really extraordinary. Like they were able to confirm with Rachel Yankee, a name that will be very familiar to Arsenal fans, I'm sure. They were able to confirm to Rachel that she holds the record for FA Cup final appearances. She didn't know that before Chris and Patricia wrote this book. Nobody knew that because nobody knew who'd played and particularly in some of these early cup finals. So, what they've done is they've they've really gone for um, a really big kind of documenting and archiving exercise. Now, Chris and I had a conversation about this that lasted nearly an hour. I had intended for it to last for about 20 minutes, 
Um, but it was just such an interesting discussion that took us in so many different directions about the importance of, of documenting women's football history um, properly because it, it really still hasn't been done properly. Um, and the, the importance and the difficulty of that, particularly when some of those early cup finals featured clubs who have either changed names, changed identities or else just plain don't exist anymore. So had a really wide ranging discussion with Chris about how he went about putting the book together, how he got some of the information. And then we just had a really wider discussion about um, what a kind of untapped uh, phenomenon women's football still is and, and how um, how much fun it is and how important it is to find out some of these things historically. So we really hope you enjoy the discussion. Like I say, I was intending it to be quite a short one, but we just both found it so interesting and got into such a flow um, and, and thought that, you know, even leaving aside the book itself, that this is a really interesting topic documenting women's football history. So here's, uh, here's me and Chris talking about this uh, for the best part of 55 minutes or so. Hope you enjoy. Chris Slegg, thanks for joining us, Chris. Oh, great to be here, Tim. Thanks for um, having me on to talk about this. Yeah, no worries at all. And, and, and as you suggest, we've, we've got you on for a very specific reason and not because you're a Spurs fan. Um, I, th- I, I thought I'd put that one out there straight away, just so people know. Arsenal are the only thing keeping me going right now, Tim. I have to say. <laughs> yes. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's not talk about that. This is women's team. Women's team. Everything's great. Um, yeah. Chris, you um, have written a book with uh, Patricia Gregory. Uh, would you like to explain um, what that book's about, and maybe um, what made you want to write it? Yeah, Sunday the 9th of May 2021, exactly 50 years since the very first uh, Women's FA Cup final. Uh, that's why I wanted to write it. I worked with Patricia Gregory. Uh, she's now retired. I worked with her many years ago at the BBC. And she was one of the people who set up the Women's Football Association back in 1969. And of course, they played a, a huge role in getting the FA to overturn that 50-year ban on women playing that stood since 1921. And they set up the Women's FA Cup, the Mitre Challenge Trophy, as it was called, and that was the first national competition for women. And if it hadn't been for what they did and the players and the managers um, getting behind them all and and forcing the the FA to recognise that uh, women should have a right to play, we wouldn't have what we've got now, which is a a thoroughly competitive uh, WSL, uh, great entertainment, matches live on TV, FA Cup finals in the women's game at Wembley with 45,000 fans there, 2 million viewers live on BBC One. Um, and as you know, as, as anyone who follows the women's game knows, the, the information out there is scant. Um, the records are kind of non-existent in many respects. And um, I just wanted to try and, and, and fill in as many of the blanks as possible. And I knew that Patricia would be the access to that, really, having the old WFA newsletters, still being in touch with so many of the players who now live all around the world. And it was a real kind of piecemeal approach, seeing what we could get from whom and together but with the help of very, very, very many people, you yourself, people you put me in touch with at Arsenal, um, every club, people like that helping, we've got what is the most complete and comprehensive record there is, but it is still not perfect. And if anyone knows anything else, please get in touch. And I want to be able to, you know, amend and add to future editions. But um, for the first time, we know exactly who scored in every final, which is more than we knew probably this time last year. Um, Definitely. And, and other things like that. So, yeah, I feel a real sense of pride in having played a small part in, in a really big team effort. 
And um and yeah, I I remember I think last year, maybe during lockdown, um, I was just trying to look up. So I remember the nineteen ninety-five FA Cup final, which Arsenal won at Tranmere. And uh, I, I didn't go to the game, but I, 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 you know, I was going to games at that point. And I thought to myself, hmm, I remember that Marianne Spacey scored, which is not an amazing feat of memory for people mm-hmm. who don't know, guessing that Marianne Spacey scored for Arsenal in 1995, the equivalent of guessing that Vivian Miedema has scored for Arsenal <laughs> in 2021. And then I thought, well, I can't remember who, who else scored in that game. And, you know, this is a final from 1995. And I could not, for the life of me, find the goal scorers, the lineup. All, all I've ever found was a photo of um, of the players with the trophy. And this is 95, like I remember it. And um, ha- maybe could you just talk about um, some of the difficulties you faced in pulling some of this information together? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, that is a staggering thing as well, Tim. We're not just talking about... So the WFA ran the competition until... Uh, 1992-93 and then the FA took over but there is even in the FA era from that 93-94 season onwards as you mentioned that 95 final there's a lot of missing information Um, Patricia was the starting point with all of the WFA stuff and the players there I went to the FA to get as much as I could from them but they don't have a lot certainly in the 90s even some of the early noughties Uh, I'm lucky that my job is at the BBC so I have access to to view the library footage and I've been able to see anything that is in the BBC library, which is far from exhaustive. Um, some people at Sky allowed me to have a glimpse of stuff that they have because they televised, they were the first to, to televise a final live in 93, 94. Mm. Um, and some of the players have kept um, highlights. Now channel four were the first to show highlights in 1989, uh, Liso Pacific against friends of Fulham. And they showed it for three or four years. And I was able to view everything that Channel 4 showed, as well as a few bits I could find that were shown on Breakfast TV and TVAM in the 80s. And going through the British newspaper archives as well to view every single thing I could find ever written um, in the 70s and 80s, at least. And then by the time you get to the 90s, there is quite a lot of newspaper coverage. So I, I certainly didn't read all of that, but made sure that we got all of the essential details. And as I say, it was really just finding what I could from where I could. And, and, and bringing as much as I could um, together. But in the 70s and the 80s, um, we still don't really know exactly who started a lot of the games. We've had to use the WFA match programmes. And as we know, a match programme doesn't list exactly who starts. It, it lists who they thought would start then. You know, the starting 11 as such, 1 to 11, the shirt numbers they had, 12 and 13 or 12 and 14 sometimes on the bench. Um, there's very few new- newspaper reports in the 70s and 80s that actually list the team, you know, we, we would expect it now. And in, in fact, we would have expected it then, I think, even in men's football. But very few of those reports actually list the starting lineup. So we've had to go with, look, this is as accurate as we can be. This is who was listed on the programme. On the rare occasion, we've got newspaper reports that tell us who started or players have kept their own records. Then, of course, that information supersedes the match programme. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I love it. I love, I, everyone loves football in different ways, don't they? I'm less of a kind of tactics person and more of a, more of a kind of key stats person, like scores, score lines, scorers, uh, records, who, who scored the most goals, who missed the first penalty, who saved the first penalty. I love that kind of thing. And my study that I'm talking to you from has got just reams and reams of books about men's football, FA Cup finals going back into you know the 1880s, the very first lineups in the 1870s. Um, so just 
just kind of staggering to start with that you couldn't really find anything. And, and we even have that problem now, don't we? The, the, the scarcity of information for, for women's football now in 2021. Yeah. So um, I, I think, you know, there's a sea change. There's a lot of people out there wanting to do more. Um, I've been put in touch with some people trying to bring together every single women's FA Cup result. Now that, that yeah. is a real challenge. Um, and they're convinced they're going to be able to do it. Um, I'm not so confident because, uh, you know, some of the players just don't even know in those very early years. But I think there's just more and more people are going to get infused by this part of history. You know, if you love football and you love football history, it's suddenly a whole new part um, to explore. And because it, because it hasn't been so overly explored, um, it's really interesting to, to look into. Yeah, definitely. I've been involved in um in a book with two Arsenal historians who um uh, and it, and it it documents Arsenal from 1886 to 1891 and so they had these challenges getting starting lineups, match reports and things like that. Um and and it's staggering and that's like the 1880s, 1890s. We're talking about like the the 80s, the 90s, like the 1980s and 1990s here. Um, what about um, throughout the course of the book? I, I read Tom Gary's piece, and I know you've worked with Tom a lot before, both at the BBC and in previous books, um, about Rachel Yankee finding out through this book that she, was it that she started the most FA Cup yeah, finals? Yeah, well, she, she's, she's the record individual. Like Ashley Cole in the men's game with seven um, FA Cup winners' medals, Rachel Yankee played in 11 winning finals, two for Fulham, nine for Arsenal. And there's because of the uh, confusion and lack of kind of clarity over, over who played in matches, I don't think it's ever really been kind of sung from the, you know, in the way that we sing about these men's records, like Ashley Cole and Ian Rush being the record uh, scorer in finals with five goals. There was so much uncertainty around um, the women's uh, games, but because I was able to look into all the starting lineups that we could know for sure, and even those going back that we can't be completely sure of, but we can be sure enough to know that no one played in 11 victorious finals other than Rachel. Obviously, with the FA Cup, and this is the same in the men's, you have people that get medals that don't necessarily play in finals. Now, uh, Katie Chapman, we know, got 10 winners' medals, and I think a lot of people kind of felt she may have been the record holder. She played in seven winning finals. She played a key role in in, in um, for teams that got to finals in three years when she wasn't actually involved in the final itself, be it through injury with Charlton, pregnancy um, with Fulham and recent childbirth, no, recent childbirth with Fulham and pregnancy um, in one of the Arsenal ones. Yep. So um, she's got 10 winners medals, played in seven winning finals. Rachel Yankee, definitely the record. She kindly contributed uh, with one of the forwards. We had a forward from Steph Horton and from Rachel Yankee. And yeah, I told her, you know, that's that's a record. And uh, that was the first she she knew for sure that it is now um, a record. And it's been nice to do. I've done that as well with Pat Chapman from Southampton, striker for them in the 70s and 80s. And we now know for sure she is uh, the record holder with um, with 10 goals in women's FA Cup finals. And she's absolutely delighted with that. Um, she says it means so much to her and it would have meant so much to her dad if she was uh, still around, if he was still around because he introduced her drove her to training and all of that sort of thing. And um, yeah, it's just nice to be able to play a small role in, in letting these players know, well, yeah, that's a record. Because, you know, we've always kept records. We've always been fascinated by records in men's football. And it, it just feels a shame that all of this, these women's achievements were kind of swept aside. Yeah, definitely. And um, what I wanted to get a picture of, so I, I remember some of those 
first finals Arsenal were in in the 90s uh, late 90s and early 2000s as well I just remember them being really low-key affairs um, not really televised I was quite fortunate I'm from South London I lived there and there was just a clutch of finals that were at the Valley in Selhurst Park so I remember um, a lot of local promotion but not much else other than that in in the 90s Um, but what was when you were kind of putting this together can you give me a picture of what a final was like in perhaps the 70s and 80s in terms of how well low-key or otherwise it was yeah I mean I I would love to time travel back um, and and see some of those games Um, because to me football at every level even if there's just a couple of people there you can get something out of the game but yeah I mean so the ban is overturned and, and and females are finally allowed to play football but at that point, they're not welcomed. I mean, some would say still not welcome. Now, obviously, we see the, the abuse that goes on on social media. But it was kind of like, well, look, we've got to allow women to play now, but we're not going to help in any way. Um, so no football league club agreed to host the final until 1982. So that was the 11th final. So the, the ones prior to that were being played. I mean, the very first one was in South London, Crystal Palace Athletic Stadium. Yep. Obviously, a football pitch that is used there, but a far from great pitch. You can there is footage of it. Very long grass, uneven surface. The grandstand uh, is just there's decent sized people there because what they did throughout the seventies and into the early eighties, they did the third and fourth place playoff immediately before the final at the at the same venue. So you would have those four teams there. You would certainly have their close family, and you would have a few followers of each club. So the grandstand looks okay actually in the in the video footage when it pans to it. But yeah, around the pitch, there's just for, you know, just a handful of people really um, watching that match. But to see that footage, and I was able to show Leslie Lloyd, the, the winning captain, so the very first woman ever to lift up the, the Women's FA Cup, uh, recently showed her colour footage for the very first time. She'd never seen it in colour before. And she said, look, this felt like Wembley to us back then. Mm. I mean, she said, it, it, she used the word and you could see it. She said it is overwhelming to see women play at Wembley now. And, and she is just so proud to have played a role in that. She says she, would, she never thought then that within 50 years, um, women's football would look the way that it does now. And she said that felt like Wembley to them. It felt in 1971 that the, that the FA was saying, OK, we recognise this. As I've just said, no one, no one seemed to really want it or welcome it. But she said it was enough to know that it was recognised and that the BBC read the result out on the news that day. And that was just about as much publicity as, publicity as they got. Sue Lopez in her 1997 semi-autobiographical book, um, Women on the Ball, uh, mentions that a mag- goal magazine, she says, did a really good photo spread, which she was really proud to see. But it doesn't seem like really anything more than that happens. Um, and that kind of remained the case throughout the 70s. You did have... Highlights actually in in men's cup final grandstand, cup final grandstand as it was when the BBC used to devote pretty much the entire day, um, as they still did when I was growing up in the eighties, you know, and in the nineties when the men's FA Cup felt like such a national event. You would occasionally get at half time or pre match in the build up um, one or two minutes of of women's highlights. So it, it did get an, an airing, a fleeting airing, and Gillian Coulthard, who many people will have heard of one of the best players in the 80s and 90s. She she saw in the 70s, Southampton and QPR met in three consecutive um, finals. And she remembers just seeing those brief highlights on cup final grandstand. 
and just thinking, wow, women do play. Mm. Um, and then she got to secondary school age and was told, you're not allowed to play. You are not allowed to play anymore. So as a teenager, 13 years old, she had to go and play for a women's team. And she was lucky that Doncaster Bells were close to her. So, you know, many, 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 and we just take this for granted as men, many, many, many girls got to that age and they were just told, you can't play anymore. You're too old mm. to play. We don't play girls' football at school. Um, and Gillian Cordard just speaks of the devastation. But again, just, just the fact that she did see it, that she saw a little bit, inspired her. And, and speaking to Mary Phillip, who won it three times with Arsenal, yeah. twice with Fulham, once with Millwall Lionesses. She saw, she lived in Peckham, still does. Yep. She saw Millwall Lionesses beat Gillian Coulthard's team in those Channel 4 highlights in 1991 and again she she just says wow she says women play football there's a cup final for women and she went on to become one of the greatest players of her generation and she's a manager now of peckham town men she led them to their first trophy last season the first woman to to win a trophy with a, a men's team at any level in this country now just just hearing from Coulthard and philip about seeing that little bit of action and what it did for them it really hits home. I mean, I know this expression has become kind of well-worn. You know, you've got to see it to be to it. To be it, yeah. But it is so obvious. I mean, it's just so obvious, isn't it, how important visibility is. And that what we took for granted, growing up, cup final day, breakfast to tea time, you know, it's a knockout, <laughs> cup final grandstand all week. And just everything that we saw as boys, just men, 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 Sabutio, Panini, Shoot Magazine, Match Magazine, 90 yep. Minute Magazine, just just everything. That, I mean, it's, you can't escape from it. And we just, that's just normal for us, right? Imagine being a young girl. I, I'm kind of shamed that it's taken me until this long in my life to even think about. I loved football and I, was, and I still love it. And I was awful at it, <laughs> dreadful at it. But I would never have been told, you can't play, can't play. anymore. Yeah. I'd have found a, a a worse, a t- you know, a team at my level, and those were all of those women who have played in FA Cup finals are far more talented than I have ever ever been at football, and they were denied the right to do it for fifty years, and then when they even when they were allowed, they got no support, and even now today, they have a fraction of the support. Really, even the very best yeah. women in this country, if we're realistic about it, still have probably less support than a very talented thirteen-year-old boy maybe other than at the very, very top clubs like Arsenal and City. So, yeah, it's been an educational process. And I'm not someone who really wants, like, the whole women's football thing to be like a gender equality debate. But you also, you can't ignore it, certainly not on an anniversary like this. You just can't. Um, Agreed, it does, yeah. make, it does open your eyes to a lot. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And what you were saying there about um, being denied the chance to play, like it happened to Kelly Smith. She was kicked off her boys' team for being the top scorer and making uh, the parents of the boys angry. Rachel Yankee shaved her head um, and pretended to be a boy so she could play, called herself Ray, which is her initials. Um, just like these these very tangible kind of people still recognise as, as legends, like, mm. you know, completely denied the chance to play. Um, I, I wanted to ask a couple of questions just to, again on like the research um, and I'll come to the Arsenal bit of that in a minute, but there are a lot of clubs. I, I looked at um, the website uh, with the book and, and like finally to have all of those finals listed with scorers in one place is just because um, there are finals that don't even have Wikipedia pages. Mm. Um, but with some clubs, 
Um, there are quite a few clubs there that don't exist anymore or not in the way that we mm. recognise them. So Croydon became mm. Charlton. Um, you know, the, the the name Knowlesley United pops up and I remember Knowlesley United because I couldn't, it really stuck out because they're Liverpool. And they used mm. to, when I was a kid, they wore the Liverpool kit with the Liverpool badge, but they were called Knowlesley United. And I remember thinking, why on earth <laughs> before mm. they were rebranded as Liverpool? So looking at, you know, a, a, a club like Croydon, who in the 90s were really, really big, but ostensibly don't really exist anymore. How difficult was it to find information on them? It's really difficult. And there's a lot of ambiguity here. And there will be problem, people, I'm sure, who will disagree with some of what is in the book. So Croydon claim now to have reformed, um, which is, you know, just really in the last few months of doing the book, Croydon Women's Football Club has reformed and they lay claim to... Um, to those um, records. Now, Charlton Charlton Athletic women, as they are now in the championship, were, as you say, kind of born out of the original Croydon. Hostile takeover. Um, Debbie Bampton, who was a Croydon manager, disagreed with the takeover and resigned. Ken Jarvie, the Croydon owner, disagreed and resigned. Charlton themselves lay no claim. I've checked that with them. They consider themselves to have been born in the year 2000. They don't lay a claim to the the FA Cups and the, and the league titles won by Croydon women. Now, the new Croydon club that has just been born um, would like to be considered as a, a reformation. Now, I, I don't see why they can't be. If we, if we consider that Manchester United women, who have just finished fourth in the, in the WSL, consider themselves to be reformed, um, then I think Croydon women have a, a right to consider themselves to be reformed too. But I do think also that it needs to be checked out with those original Croydon players, the likes of Debbie Bampton, uh, the likes of Hope Powell. Um, I've not had a clear response yet from Debbie, how she feels about it, but in some ways, and I have no right to say this, I think it's great that there would be a, a continuation, a kind of vessel to keep that history alive. Um, Nosley United are, a dire- are definitely considered to be Liverpool of a previous name. Liso Pacific, by the majority, are considered to be Everton. So if we talk about Everton now, Liso Pacific's FA Cups are, are considered to be Everton's. In fact, they only won it once as Liso Pacific. Um, but there are lots of confusions. And, and, and again, this is why it's so much more difficult than men's football, because obviously in men's football, since the 1920s, probably most have been professional entities they are a business or a company as such not just a a kind of grassroots team and so there is a direct bloodline and obviously the most famous example Milton Keynes Dons AFC Wimbledon all of the uproar and and um you know controversy there whereas with women's football you have you have teams that just go out of existence and then pop up a bit again like Lowestoft Um, got to the final in 1979, won it in 82, folded a few months later because teams were refusing to travel. They couldn't afford to travel all the way out to um, the East Coast. Um, They've they've been reborn twice as Lowestoft Town. They went out of existence most recently in 2017. Um, But I would like to think if they reformed a a women's team in Lowestoft that really they could claim that history. But it's hard to know what is... Correct. It's a lot easier to know what is correct in men's football. The biggest confusion is Southampton. So yep. until Arsenal overtook their record, Southampton won eight of the first 11 women's FA Cups. They folded in the mid-80s and they were reborn in the mid-90s. 
And the current Southampton women who play in tier four right now do consider themselves to be a direct, um, well, to be that club reborn. And they lay claim to those eight trophies. And I've not found any of the original Southampton women who object to that right now. But in the intervening decades, there has been a lot going on in the Southampton area. So we had Red Star Southampton had been formed. And when Southampton women folded, many of those players joined Red Star Southampton, who were runners-up to Doncaster Bells in 1992, and then changed their name to Southampton Saints and lost to your lot, Arsenal, in 99 at the Valley in a very well-attended final, actually 6,500 yep. there, that. which I think was a record, and, and you guys won it 2-0. Um, and then they became affiliated with the men's Premier League club, Southampton. And when Southampton uh, got relegated the men's club in 2005, they severed their ties with, with the, um, the women. They said, we can't support you anymore, which again is a very common thing that's happened. Uh, also happened with Charlton later on. Um, and uh, so Southampton Saints continued as an independent body until... 2018, 2019, I think it was 2019. And then they couldn't continue and, and they, they folded. And, you know, that's, to me, it sounds heartbreaking. That's a, that's a team that um, got to two FA Cup finals and was cast aside by a Premier League club, kept itself going and can no longer support itself. But at the same time, Southampton, at the same time that Manchester United did, uh, kind of um, set up their own women's team and they are now doing very well in the same division as Southampton women and they are managed by Marianne Spacey, yeah. uh, the Arsenal legend. Um, so it's quite weird to have Southampton FC women connected to the Premier League men's club playing in the same division as Southampton women FC who are the eight-time FA Cup winners but certainly now the poor relations really. Um I've waffled on a lot there. It's very confusing. It's a book. It's a documentary. It's a film in its own right. Mm. Uh, what's going on in Southampton, really. I hope that one day that could become a reality because it is, it's a fascinating history, really, what's going on. And it, again, it just points to the lack of support out there for, yep. for clubs that could have been that good and to have such an important part in the history of football, not, not women's football, the history of football in this country um, and just... Just no real support to, to yeah. continue. Yeah, and it's when you look at like, um, um, sorry, I'm going to aggrandise Arsenal here. Uh, you look at like the record, of, and you know, Arsenal have won it 14 times, and second is Southampton with eight. Um, and obviously, at the moment, they have absolutely no chance of of catching. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at like Chelsea won it twice, Man City, I think, have won it two or three times. So like, Arsenal's record up there, I think, I think, is secure for a couple of decades at least. Um, just on the research point, I've spoken to Arsenal quite a lot over the last couple of years um, because they underwent like a big uh, data, well, not a data cleanse, a data gathering process for some of this historic stuff. Um, and I've spoken to Max Jones about that on this podcast. In, in terms of, because obviously Arsenal was such a big part of the Women's FA Cup as the record winners and, and uh, how, so how easy was it to access um, information about Arsenal, both from Arsenal and speaking to, you know, Arsenal legends? It, I mean, it was one of the easier ones, but it was still far from easy. And, and you helped me. And I, I, I'm so sorry that I've forgotten the name of the people you put me in touch with because um, 
because of countless many people I've had to contact, but you put me in touch with one of the photographers there who was able to work out some of the shirt numbers that were worn uh, from photographs he had taken. Um, you put me in touch with someone else at the club, but the club itself did not appear to me um, to have exhaustive records. Uh, and you and, and you, the people you're working with may find differently. And I'm sure, you know, more people there than I do. The FAs certainly have far from exhaustive records in those nineties and early noughties. Um, Vic Akers was brilliant with me, gave me everything, every help he could have, but he's, you know, people are different. Not everyone's a record keeper. I don't sense that he was, there was a lot that he hadn't written down and, you know, you can't blame him for that. That's not his priority to do that. And again, this all comes back to the resources within the women's game. You know, it's not, it's record keeping is not a priority for, for the WFA in the seventies and eighties when they're trying to book a pitch and get a kit and get a referee and just even battle playing. And, and, you know, even a club as, as brilliant as Arsenal and what they've done in the women's game, um, you know, the forefront of that, it's not going to be a priority for them. Is it when they're, when they're just trying to get, get their team going and almost like professionalize their team in an era that wasn't professional, um, so yeah, I mean that shows the challenge though that even even from a club that has done more for women's football in this country possibly than any, given that given that they were the at the forefront of the game from the nineties onwards, and still are one of the biggest clubs on the on the women's scene, um, doesn't appear to, to me from what I've found to have an exhaustive record of of everything. So yeah, that that kind of sums up the challenge really. Um, and the fact, yeah, that, that 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 search for for the records didn't just kind of you know become easy in the eighties or nineties, even into the two thousands. Really, there's been quite a lot of having to to scour around um, and not just having it all there in front of you in official sources. But again, that's part of, to me that's part of the joy and part of the challenge um, to 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 play a part in that. And and hopefully that will spark off other things where people might find things that they kept. I mean, I had one of the Southampton players on the phone to me the other night saying she thinks she has found some cine reel of the 78 final, um, which is uh, the record aggregate score and 8-2 Southampton beat QPR. And if that does turn out to be what she thinks it is, and if if we're able to convert it, then I, I for one, am going to be fascinated to see the footage on that tape. And it, it's just, it's, it's just kind of sparking that off in other people to go and see what they have, what they might have. Um, Maria, who I'm sure every Arsenal women fan knows, she's yep. helped as much as she can, um, and she put me in touch with someone called Marcia, and they've they've had a few old programs they very kindly posted to me to just help with with little bits to just fill in little gaps here and there. Um, you know, together, everyone has helped. We've done everything that we we could do in time to get this out for the 50th anniversary. But as I say, there's still more there, more blanks to fill in, without doubt. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Yeah, yeah, and uh, incidentally, um, I spoke to Marcia this morning and I know she's bought the book, so... <laughs> Thanks, Marcia. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> so there you go. Um, j- just kind of finally, um, I mean, I, I'm thinking about like what some of the real touchstones in the Women's FA Cup history are. So, you know, maybe the first time it was televised in 2015, it being at Wembley. What, what do you regard as like the I, real forks in the road for the history of this competition? I think, as I was saying, alluding to earlier, visibility. And I think those are three standout moments. So when the WFA handed the running of the game over to the FA and that, that first the first final under FA auspices, 94. And because it's under FA auspices, I'm pretty sure, I wasn't able to completely clarify, but because the FA Premier League, as it was then, had their contract with um, Sky, that FA final, FA Cup final, was on live on Sky as part of the build-up to Blackburn v QPR, part of Super Sunday. Um and Richard Keyes and Andy Gray, much as we all know what happened in, in later years, that final, when you view it, is covered with respect. Proper build-up, proper analysis, proper part of of what it felt, you know, like, like a Sunday afternoon. It, it, hats off to Sky for covering it that way. Whatever those we might think of um, those two guys now and whatever they might have been thinking themselves or, I don't know, saying behind the scenes, that meant a lot to see that final covered in the way Sky do it. And, you know, Sky is saying next year when the WSL, they will give it the full Sky Sports treatment. And I'm sure they will. And that's mm. going to be, you know, I, I, like the pricing factor and the fact it isn't on terrestrial, that, that, that's a big deal for a lot of people. I understand that. But for the quality of the coverage and the time they will give to it, those who are able to afford it, and I know that's far from everyone, um, 
that's going to be really good coverage and it's going to take it to a new level. But yeah, that first, the first time it was live and on Sky, 94, uh, Doncaster Bells beating Nosley United 1-0. Karen Walker with the winner. Nosley went on to become Liverpool or change their name to Liverpool within a few months. Then a really big moment and Mary Phillip summed this up when the BBC showed it live for the first time on terrestrial TV, 2002, and Fulham beat Doncaster Bells 2-1. Katie Chapman and Rachel Yankee both scored for Fulham. And Mary Phillips says they didn't realise how big a deal being on BBC One was at the time in the match, and they were just concentrating on winning it. But within days, people actually coming up to them, recognising them on the street, saying, well done. And it hit home. It's like, wow, people have, people have seen that. Um, and she was kind of relieved she didn't know how big a deal it was going into the match. And they've pretty much all, other than three, I think when it went back to Sky for three years, they've all been on terrestrial telly since the vast majority on BBC, one of them 2009 when Arsenal beat Sunderland on ITV. Um, and that's been key. But yeah, the, the biggest thing for me is definitely that Wembley move in 2015. And you look back and Vic Akers was banging the drum for that for years, as was Keith Bonus. Uh, um, sorry if I pronounced his name wrong at, at Charlton. Um, they were making the point in 2007, 2008 sort of time. Um, Charlton Arsenal, when they met at in 2007 at the city ground, 27,000 there. Similar number the following year when Arsenal beat Leeds at the same stadium. And they were saying, look, you play the FA Vars and the FA Trophy at Wembley. You don't get that as many fans. So what, what, what's your argument here? You know, what, what, you know, you're saying, oh, we can't afford to put it in a big stadium, but you're playing men's games of a far lesser stature. This is the biggest, this is before the WSL, this is the biggest match that women get to play in this country and you don't deem it to be as worthy of your, as your secondary non-league competition for men. And it took another almost decade, 2015, for the FA to do it. And as I say in the book, some would say that's a masterstroke. Some would say, why the, why on earth didn't it happen earlier? Um, and to get 30,000 there in that first one, Chelsea beating Notts County 1-0. And it's grown pretty much every year. It, it dipped back a little bit um, between 2018 and 2019. But we got to 45,000 in 2018 when Chelsea beat, sorry to say it, beat <laughs> Arsenal um, 3-1. And look, it, you know, you can't have too much football, right? People love football people are going to go and watch affordable football the first game that i take my kids to i've got a six-year-old boy and a three-year-old girl i'm not going to be able to afford a family day out or or get the tickets probably for a family day out at tottenham um i might be able to do it once a year as a treat in future um tottenham men i'm talking about and i wouldn't want to take kids of that age there because the concentration for 90 minutes in it where you've got to, you've got to stay rooted in your seat, obviously at a men's premier league club. Now I'm more likely to take them to watch a WSL game or a championship game where it's probably going to cost me 20 quid as a family. And we can move around a bit if we want to yep. still be watching the game and paying attention, but we can change our vantage point when the kids get bored, go and get a drink, whatever. Um, but to have obviously cup finals at Wembley, to, to our generation, to my generation, where the FA Cup was everything, if you're a floating fan, you're more likely to buy into the brand name FA Cup than you are into the WSL, in my opinion, because you're going to know what growing up, what the FA Cup meant in men's football. And you're going to go, what? I can go, I can, I can afford tickets and I can actually get tickets 
to go and take my family to the FA Cup final yeah, for women. Yeah, and and, and um, you know that's why we're getting great crowds there. And and Steph Horton said to me, she she genuinely does not think it will be long until we're selling out Wembley for women's FA Cup finals. And I agree with her. I I, I just think that's going to happen. It's 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 just. I mean, we kind of see it recently in, in everything that's happened with the ESL, right? People are yearning for human football, for a, a reconnection with football. And it's obvious to me, so many are going to find that in women's football. And the sad thing about that probably is it, it, it's still not going to detract from the men's Premier League. It's going to be probably men's non-league football and, and probably men's football league that is going to bear the brunt of it, where people are perhaps floating fans or... Um, people who will look for their local women's club are going to go. And, and it's also going to be the media exposure growing in the women's game, quite rightly, but that's going to probably take away from the non-league exposure that we get and the football league exposure. And the big beef of the Premier League are probably going to be untouched. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot there. I've, I've, I mean, I've just, to be honest, I've, I've just always loved football. And mm. it occurred to me in 2017 I've never paid any attention to women's football. I've, I've been I've been a sports journalist since the year two thousand, and other than Arsenal women when they were in the Champions League and Chelsea women more recently, and the Women's Cup finals I covered with the BBC, it still didn't, you know, it wasn't part of my life. It wasn't. It was like I covered these games, and I was just not paying any attention to it. Now that wasn't a deliberate thing, hmm. um, but I started to think why. Why not? I mean, I know there's a quality debate, but I don't follow football for the quality. If I only watched football for the quality, I'd just watch El Clasico, which some people do. And yeah, I'd yeah. just watch Man City, which some people do. And that's fine, right? I watch football for drama and emotion and stories. And you get that at any level of men's football and any level of women's football. Someone wins a cup final, it's joy, it's emotion. And, and someone loses it, it's devastation. That could be our school team, right? the highest yep. level I played at, my school C team, or it can be the women's FA Cup final, the best women in the country, the best that society and the lack of resources has allowed women to be. That's the best they were allowed to be, right? You can look back at it and you can say, well, that doesn't look great. You can look back at the men's World Cup final, the greatest moment in our in our country's footballing history and not detracting from anything those guys achieved. The football no. doesn't look great because they didn't have the resources that we have now, right? So um, the quality debate to me is one that I could have for, for hours. And but my, my initial point was, once you start to look into women's football, if you are a lover of all football, and not everyone is, some people hate the Men's Premier League, they're entitled to. Some people have no time for non-league football, they're entitled to. Some people have rightful reasons to, to not want to engage with women's football that aren't necessarily sexist, that's fine. But if you do love all football, it might just never have occurred to you to check out the women's game. And once you get into it, it's just a treasure trove of amazing, amazing stories. Because not only have you got the football drama that you've got, you've got this extra layer of women having to fight like a ridiculous level of, of sexism and hostility. Um, and I'll admit, I'm someone who occasionally, as a, as a white straight man who's not had to face much in my life, I am someone who goes, I'm not sure if what we're talking about here is sexist or not. But when it comes to banning women from playing the national sport for 50 years, and then when you learn about what they still had to go through and still go through now, it certainly opens your eyes a hell of a lot. Um, and you do start to think a lot more about other things and other inequalities. And I think that's a healthy thing. 
Um, yeah. As I say, I don't want it to be the the main part of the, de- the debate when it comes to women's football because it stands there in its own right with these incredible cup finals to to salute. Like the one you mentioned, 95, Marianne Spacey scoring an absolutely brilliant goal late on to win that for Arsenal. And Karen Burke had scored two stunning goals for Liverpool in that game, right? And And again, you go back to the quality debate. Yes, you can say over 90 minutes... Probably men, are, you know, the very best men in the Premier League who've got every single resource are going to, you know, play at a higher level um, than than women, certainly back in the day, because they've got a greater resource to do that. But if you if you look at the goals that were being squ- scored, if you look at isolated moments, there's there's nothing there that, that says, oh, that goalkeeper is awful. There are some incredible goals that have just never seen the light of day. It wasn't bad defending or bad goalkeeping. Obviously, you get bad goalkeeping in men's and women's football. But there are some just amazing cup final moments, just as there are in the men's game, which we see replayed year after year after year after year. Ricky Villa's goal, which I will love until I die, and I'll never get tired of seeing. But there's goals that stand on that merit. Alison Leverbarrow scoring in ninety in 74. That's an amazing goal, right? Just a few people there to watch it at Bedford Town, I think that one was. And if, if more people had been there, if it had been advertised properly, if people had been allowed to know about it, they'd have come away from that game talking about that goal. I mean, there's honestly, curl off, curler into the top left-hand corner beyond the reach of the keeper. There is no difference between a man or a woman hitting that ball in that moment. It might be easier for men to play at the full intensity for 90 minutes, certainly in that day when women just had no support at all. But when yeah. it comes to actual moments of quality and drama, which we use to showcase the men's game all of the time. You know, you can have a terrible, terrible match, but if you have an amazing goal in it, it'll be idolised forever. Yeah, um, I, the, the first ever Arsenal ladies match I went to, Marianne Spacey scored direct from a corner and um, I'd, I'd never seen that done before. And uh, let me assure you, I, I, there's no footage of it anywhere, but um, it wasn't a goalkeeping mistake. It flew yeah. into the top corner and Marianne Spacey scored a lot of goals like that and I saw Kelly Smith score a lot of goals like that when both when she was younger and and when she was older as well and and yeah completely agree just in in those moments and you know we're talking the day before the WSL season finishes this will go out just after so I don't know who's been relegated yet but when this goes out we'll know out of Bristol City Aston Villa Birmingham who's been relegated and you know people will probably be familiar with the scenes there will be tears there will be you know, and and it's it's just as yeah yeah it's 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 high drama. Um, it really is, and I completely agree with you. I've been following the men's and women's game for you know I've been following the women's game for twenty five years or so, and I I just I just don't notice these um, these like so called differences, and it's not necessarily because they're not there. I guess it's just I find it very difficult when people say to me, oh, but it's a lot slower, isn't it? And I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it is. Maybe it is. I don't know. But I'm like, I'm not thinking about that when I'm watching it. And, and yeah. therefore, it's, it doesn't really matter. I, you know. No, I mean, this is the thing. It's funny how you, you quickly get over it. So, um, listen, I was brought up just watching men playing football. So, clearly, when I start to watch women's football, it does feel... Di- I feel that I do believe there's so many different, different genres of football. I'll watch the Football League for a different reason from the Premier mm. League. I'll watch the Champions League for a different reason. I'll watch men's non-league football for a different reason. I'll watch women's football for a different reason. And if you've only ever watched men play football, as people of my generation had, then there's going to be... To start off with, you're going to think, 
oh yeah it is slower oh it isn't as intense you will see some long range goals that wouldn't go in in the men's mm. game because you know the average goalkeeper is shorter but you yeah. also see goals that absolutely no goalkeeper, man or woman, yeah. could stop, right? And, and I always consider, uh, sorry, like the, the long-range goals. There are more long-range goals in women's football, definitely. There still are. But, like, I consider that a feature, not a bug. And I don't see why that's a bad thing, personally. Like, I, I'm all for seeing more goals from 25, 30 yards. Completely. Without any doubt at all. And, but as I say, I, I, I will see it in a different... Originally, when I, when I really started to watch it... You do see the differences, but as I say, if you so I, I started from the starting point. What, why do I just never watch? If I'm not watching football that has to be the very, very best, you know, just the top four in the Premier League or El Clasico, why am I not watching women's football? Why do I love ground hopping on the, the occasional chance that I get going to watch men's team playing at any any level? And I just thought, well, hang on, why haven't I gone and watched? I'm also I also live in South London right now. Well, I have done for a long time, and um. I also I went to watch Crystal Palace women because they were just down the road. And I thought, why Bromley. haven't I come to watch? I've got, I've gone to watch Bromley play at the same ground. Same, yep. Um, why haven't I been to watch Crystal Palace women? And I've, I don't know if it's sexist. I, I genuinely I don't know if that's sexist, right? But I, I definitely think it points to a lack of visibility because it hadn't occurred to me to even if if the whole media narrative and the whole publicity drive is purely about men playing then it doesn't feel like a natural thing to go and do. But once you get over that, as you say, you don't notice these differences. If you just love football, you love football. And, 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 you, and because of how kids are being brought up, seeing more of it, in the same way that I was brought up, you watch Wimbledon, men and women play tennis. You watch the Olympics, men and women play gold med- win gold medals for Great Britain in the swimming pool on the track or in many yep. sports. But for my generation, only men was shown playing football so therefore it feels like an alien thing but once you get over the fact that it isn't and because now it's becoming more visible i genuinely think that for my kids it won't feel like oh that's women's football that's men's football um and i think that's a great thing you know it's um and it's taken so so long um because of people like me being so slow to wake up to it you know there's so many people like yourself have been following women's football far longer than me there's amazing journalists out there who've been covering it since the 80s and 90s and banging this drum and going why is no one paying attention to this and you know i'm a, i'm a massively a johnny come lately to all of this and you know they'll be sitting there thinking god have you only just cottoned on to this like inequality and 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 all of these reasons but yeah i have i've been late to the party but i'm still so early on in, in other people who are going to be and that's a great thing people people are going to be joining this party next year when it's showing more regularly on the main BBC channels, when it's on Sky pretty much every week, when we're building up to Euro 2022 as it is now in England, when hopefully yep. Team GB have done all right in Tokyo. You know, we say it every season, but it's true. This is another landmark season for women's football. And again, that's part of the excitement for me. There's just so much that is new. There's so much that happens for the first time. Whereas if you follow men's football all your life, you know, some of the narratives are becoming well-worn now. You know, the, yep. the champions around Europe in the men's game. It is great that we still have a bit of unpredictability here with, a, with kind of, well, the big six, much as my, my club Tottenham really have little right to, to put themselves there in terms of medals won. But it's, you know, it's great that Leicester won it. It's great that Leicester are up there now. 
I think from a neutral perspective, it's great that West Ham are still in there with a with a chance. We have a bit more of unpredictability than seeing Juventus win it every year or Real Madrid or Barca win it every year and Bayern win it every year. But I feel like you kind of you you, you get a bit bored of the Premier League, maybe much as Tottenham will always be my love and I'll always want to see them. So you start to explore non-league football, you start to explore European football, and then and then as I say, it hit me. Well, like I'm just exploring more men's football. Why haven't I looked at the women's game? And then you, you start to look into that. And it's just like, like it's just an overwhelming. Like you go like my favorite cup final that I found out about 1996, Croydon against um, Liverpool goes to penalties at the den. Liverpool bring on Gail Formston just to take a penalty. She comes on, doesn't even kick the ball, ends up being the decisive one, puts it over the bar. Now that is drama that you just, you, you know, and she kindly spoke to me about it. She's still gutted about it, understandably. She's able to compartmentalise and have a bit of a laugh about it too, but she's absolutely gutted. And there's this amazing photo, which I wasn't able to put in the book, taken by a guy called Peter Oliver, who would have been happy for me to put it in the book, um, who I spoke to as well. Um, and he he actually brought out a, a book of football photos and she's in it and she's just standing there, head in her hands. And she said, if that had been taken an hour later, she'd have still been there. Yeah, you know, it just and her teammates are in the background, just like slumped on the pitch. She's unable to comprehend what she, you know. She feels like she's let the team down. She's come on to take a kick and she's missed it. And the Croydon goalkeeper Louise Cooper, who is now, I think, assistant manager at Dorking Wanderers Ladies. It might be the might be the men's team. I'm sorry, I've forgotten. And she helps. She watched. She still has the VHS of that final, and she watched it for me because I couldn't meet her during COVID. And um, she relayed to me how all the penalties went in. That was one of the ones that was on Sky. She didn't save any, but Liverpool missed three. And Gail Formston, the one who missed the decisive one, said what Lou did was stand just off centre. And that's certainly what put her off. She said she knew what she was doing. She noticed Lou stood off centre. She thought twice about it, got under it, put it over the bar. And Louise Cooper describes, like, she, she, she kind of lost count. She had to check with the referee, have we won? <laughs> referee goes, yeah. And she said she just ran and ran and ran and ran, screaming to her mum and dad. Um, she let us use a photo of her and her mum on top of the, the bus. Croydon did a bus parade. They'd won the mm. double. Uh, her and her mum holding up the trophies. Her mum sadly passed away not too long after. That's a favourite photo of her, of her life. Now, the way that Gail... And Louise described the emotion of that yep. game. That is just like I would love to. I want. I want to get that tape off Lou one day and watch it. Um, I'd love to have been there. That I mean, that drama is just as you know. We all experienced with England men later that summer, heartbreaking yep. Euro '96, Gareth Southgate uh, missing, and and those emotions are exactly the same in what was the key women's match of the season. Um, so those stories are just. Just there, you know. I've I've heard everything about seventy three and Sunderland and seventy six and Southampton and and all of Tottenham's amazing history, which I'm so proud of as a fan and I continue to love. Um, you know, Ricky Villa there and all of the stuff that our club did and other amazing cup finals in the, in the men's game. Gerard in two thousand and six, um, and I just thought I've never looked into the Women's Cup final and obviously it's all there. It's all there. All these stories, all these heroes, all these amazing goals, all these incredible stories of emotion. Um, And it's, it's kind of, you know, clubs are waking up to it. Clubs, as I just, as I said earlier, you can't have too much football. 
you know, clubs have been trying to get yep. people to go and watch their under 23 teams. Well, I'm sorry, but people are going to buy into women's football, see, women's senior football, more than they're going to go and watch Premier League under 23. Yeah. They just are. Because of the competition aspect, yeah. right? Because yeah. like you're not just trying to get into another team. Um, you yeah. know, the yeah. results matter. You're talking about forming an ESL, a breakaway, because you want to engage with people. Like There's something they're still staring a lot of you in the face that you've not twigged, right? You want more football? Just, just yeah. you know, we haven't even seen the Women's Champions League properly televised in its earlier stages, even this season, right? That's staring you in the face, UEFA, and I know they're, they're going to put more into it, and I know that we're seeing all of these games, but if you want to if you want to exploit and we're all getting sick of being exploited as fans but there's something there to be exploited and to be showcased um and to get you know to to, god knows what you could do double the audience of of global football probably not but you could you know if you, you start to really take these events seriously even the world cup even the euros and certainly the champions league you know it's it's there on your doorstep to go and and make more money if that's what you're looking to do because yeah. there's a whole part of the population that you've overlooked for decade after decade after decade. Yeah, absolutely. That that's um that's how Arsenal Ladies was kind of sold to me by my mum when I was younger. I used to go to Highbury on a Saturday and uh and it wasn't enough, right? It wasn't enough to go one day in the weekend. And so my mum was like, Well, Arsenal Ladies play on the Sunday. And um it was never but this is women's football, it's different. It's just all, all right, there's more Arsenal. And uh, mm. so it's like, you can go to Arsenal on a Saturday and a Sunday. And I was like, brilliant, fine. And so it was never, it was never pitched to me by my mum as women's football. It was just, and, and when you've got that, um, particularly that real like tribal club loyalty um, as well, it, like you say, like the, the women's teams are, are, are just like on the doorstep there and, and, yeah. you know, just need the love and care. Chris, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to cut it short there. Um, I think we could both do this all day. <laughs> yes, um, definitely. But um, so the, the book, a history of the women's FA cup final by Chris Slegg and Patricia Gregory, Chris, do you want to tell people where they can pick this book up? Yeah, so I am told it is actually in all good all good bookshops, as I used to say when I was growing up. So um, all the major outlets of Waterstones will have some copies, which has made me actually feel really, really proud. I was only told that uh, this week. But obviously for most people, certainly in the era we're living in right now when getting out and about isn't all that easy, Amazon is the easiest place to find it. But all those main re- major retailers, WH Smiths, Foils, Waterstones, will be, will be selling it on their websites as well independent bookstores go and ask for a copy i'm all for supporting them when when it's safe and able to do so um they'll order you in a copy because it will be on the major distributors lists and you know it may even be more affordable to go down that route every retailer prices it at slightly different prices but yeah just um should be able to find it fairly easily and i'm trying to um grow the awareness of the, of the history of the cup as well on twitter with a, an account called wfa cup history um, anyone who wants to find out more about the finals, I'm hoping to grow that account. It's a very small account at the moment, just around 300 followers. I've set up a website, which is in very much in its infancy, partly to promote the book and partly be- to give people a taste of what is in the book. And that is called womensfacup.co.uk. But that's something that I do hope to build, build on and get more and more of the, um, information there, but I'm not a tech wizard and, um, <laughs> And it's taken help from some very kind people to get me that far. Um, so, yeah, I, I really see um, not just the Women's Super League as being something that people are going to want to get more infused by, but the Women's FA Cup as well, even though it already has some of those problems that the 
the men's FA Cup has, as I'm sure you're aware. But yeah, um, Amazon, Google, anywhere you can find it. I'd love people to, to, to buy it and let me know what they think about it. And also, if they can fill in any of the gaps that are still there. Um, it's a team effort. And um, I'm sure there may be people out there who, who went to a, the odd game, might have kept something might be related to someone who played and kept a newspaper report that isn't in the British newspaper archives, kept a photo, kept some footage. If you did, please get in touch. Thanks very much, Chris. And uh, really thanks for your time. That was a, a fascinating conversation and, uh, and I can't wait to read the book. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I could have talked for hours and I'm sorry <laughs> that some of my answers were uh, far from short. Thank you very much, Chris. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.